when he grabbed the clerk's hand, he said he thought the gun was fake. And then the stock person in his report says that he was just standing there still and he was dazed and he said, I thought it was a blank. Snow Files, Season 3, Episode 43. Sorry, Derek. Maurice Johnson, Alternative Suspect, Q&A. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. Thanks for joining us for this week's Q&A segment, where we dodge rabbit holes, slay inaccuracies, and untangle this web one fiber at a time. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Tam, and today we have Ray, Leslie, and we wanted to introduce Melinda. Melinda is going to be our intern for this semester, and we're so happy to have the help. So, Melinda, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, everyone. My name is Melinda, and I am a freshman at Illinois Wesleyan. I am a double major in studio art and political science, and I first learned about Jamie Snow's case through the first-year experience Justice Scholars at Wesleyan with Professor Vickery, and I was just really fascinated because it was such a complicated case. And then the more I learned, the more I became convinced of Jamie Snow's innocence. And so I was really excited for the opportunity to get involved and try to do whatever I could to help. So, yeah. Well, we're definitely so happy to have you on board. What do you want to do as far as career-wise? I'm definitely interested in law school, and I would love to go into some type of human rights law or advocating for people. The more I've learned about wrongful convictions, it actually seems like a field I would be interested in. So I think the things I will learn here will just definitely in every way help me prepare for what I'm going to do after college. Thanks for coming, Melinda. I was just thinking while you're talking about that, that it's so wonderful for you to be in so early on in your studies and discover wrongful convictions during a really pivotal time for your course of career. I think a lot of people find their way into this field later in life through, I guess it's just my impression, doing like regular law and then learning about this stuff and feeling compelled to make a difference. Or maybe they find themselves, unfortunately, in this situation and become an advocate or a lawyer. So it's really refreshing that you are just starting off and already choosing that path. And what state do you live in, Melinda? Um, I live in Illinois. Oh, cool. So do you think that you're going to try to work with the Innocence Project or the Exoneration Uh Project or anything like that? Yeah, it's definitely a possibility. I mean, who knows where I'll be after college. I have four years to figure out where exactly I'm going to be, but it's definitely a possibility. Have you ever heard of Jamie Snow before your class? No, I hadn't. Um, I'm from Chicago. I'm not actually from the Bloomington area. So I didn't hear about anything to do with Bloomington before I came here pretty much. But Mm -hmm. yeah, definitely. It's a case that I would have thought would have had a lot more publicity than it's had. Again, thank you for coming aboard. We are super excited about it. We've got all kinds of work lined up for you already, (laughs) as you know. So let's get to the episode. So this episode was about Maurice Johnson who was a very early young criminal who turned into a pretty violent career criminal. In the beginning of the episode, Vargas did an interview with the witness that said that Johnson said he did the crime. At the end, Vargas made what appeared to be a speculative statement 
He said, did they say this because Johnson is supposed to be doing robberies too? Did they assume this? Does anyone have any thoughts on why he may have said that? That just struck me as so odd for him to say that. And uh, again, he never said anything like that when somebody was trying to say something about Jamie. Right. So was Barkas just an officer in 1992? He wasn't a detective yet? He was there on the beginning of the case, but I think he he was supposed to get off the case. But maybe Ray can talk a little bit more about that. But yeah, he was an officer, I believe, at the time. So look at him before he's trying to solve a cold case and he's just working in real time on a regular case and he's giving the accused the benefit of the doubt and, you know, using his little investigative brain to organize information and decide what makes sense and what doesn't make sense. (laughs) And he doesn't do that later when nine years later in Jamie's case, when he's doing a cold case and he's already got an agenda, he already has the suspect in mind. That all goes out the window. You know, I hate to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but it seems like what happened for the cold case was all about framing. How can we make the evidence fit Jamie. Whereas back in 1992, seems like he's doing a pretty regular expected job. That's a really good point. That's not something that I thought of. It's been strange to me. Barkas just kind of pops up in different places just randomly, it seems like, in the beginning of the investigation. Wasn't there a police report, Ray, where he was there or he was supposed to be there. Do you remember what I'm talking about? He he just comes up randomly right in the beginning and then he just disappears. And then in 93, you know, that's only a couple of years later, we found that memo that was never disclosed where he's making a case to indict Jamie. So I wonder if he was always like that? Or like, that's a really good point about him being more open-minded at the beginning of his career. What do you think, Ray? I think he was a detective in 91 and continuing on through. And like you said, he pops up. He was at the scene of the murder because we have people saying, Barkas, talk to me, but there's no reports. He doesn't write a lot of reports. We keep missing or they've been kept back from us as the other option that we always kind of suspect. But yeah, he was he was there in 91 on Easter Day. And he's involved here with Johnson in 92. He's mentioned in reports throughout. And then he kind of burst onto the lead in 1998, almost appearing to be like the lead investigator then. Charlie Crow was the lead Back in 91 on Little, looks like Charlie Crow did a lot of work on Johnson in 1992. There's quite a gap of time that we're covering over here. Right. And recall that Barkas had Easter dinner with Palumbo, right? And he said he heard on the scanner about the crime and they went up there. Isn't that right? Exactly. I mean, that's a whole separate line of police officer socializing with felons. That's just a whole kind of code of ethics issue that I've always questioned why Barks has any relationship to these investigations or Jamie Snow at all. But that's a whole different podcast. But it seems like he was trying to, I got the impression because the reports are so sporadic and then all of a sudden he pops up in 93 trying to make a case to indict Jamie and they blew him off. He was always trying to insert himself in this case, even in 1991 from the time of the crime. Does anybody else get that impression? He kind of appears to me and the other cats. They kind of appear to be cowboys. They want to get involved with everything and just get a reputation for themselves. And and every department has those kind of guys. Yeah, it's hard for me to say one way or the other because everything's so incestuous with this case and the way it's even progressed after 20-something years that I can't tell if it's coincidence because it's such a small town that he's in everything or if he's actively trying to do it 
But it does amaze me to always see the same names come up time and time and time again. And it makes me wonder, how could you be so irresponsible and have selective memory in 1999 when you were literally there for all these crimes? So how could you feign ignorance when you're wrongfully accusing Jamie Snow and gathering all this evidence against him? How can you feign ignorance when you were there for all of this? personally. The other thing about that initial report was that he referenced that Bernardini had interviewed two people and those names are redacted. These documents that we have on this case are heavily redacted, but he said, see report from Bernardini, see supplement report. Is that something that you've ever seen, Ray? Quite honestly, the way that I mean, we've been fed the reports, and they're, when we get a report, I mean, other people have looked at it, and they've, I always suspect they pull reports and say, hey, don't show this to them, or keep it out, or whatever. But either way, usually the police report would say, I did this, and Officer Jones did something. Officer Jones typed a supplemental report, and it's attached, and it's always one cohesive story. I went one place, this guy went here, here's what he said, here's what he found. And it's all put together in one spot. And Jamie's documents that we've been getting, there's a lot of things like this. Barks refers to a report that another investigator interviewed two people. And it says, see that report. We've come across this in in a lot of other instances with other reports that There's supplementals floating around somewhere. I don't think we've asked for this one, particularly from Bernardini, the state trooper. It wasn't included in any of the Illinois State Police FOIA reports that we've received. I I looked the other day for it again, and there's no supplemental report that Bernardini talked about interviewing two witnesses. So I don't know where it went. I don't know who has it. I don't know if it was intentionally kept from us. I don't know if it was lost and just not attached properly. I don't know if Barks is just saying uh, Bernardini was going to talk to these two and he never did. We don't have any of that kind of stuff. Hopefully, you know, some of the documents that Jamie's looking for right now have been supplied uh, by the state, but that remains to be seen. Now, the other interesting thing is we got to know Sergeant Bernardini, way back in episode five. This is another person who comes up again and again, and he's the one who interviewed Jamie for a Freedom gas station incident in April of 91, just a month after Bill Little's murder. This is the guy who said that he interviewed Jamie about a robbery And Jamie was all paranoid about it. But then he went to trial and he changed it to murder. So this is the guy who changed robbery to murder. So here he is again. I find that quite interesting, too. And it makes me wonder if it was all these same people. Did they ever accuse Jamie of this robbery, too? And if not, it's because they didn't think he was doing the string of robberies in Bloomington back then. Do you know anything about that, Ray or Tam? Where was he ever accused of Maurice Johnson's crimes? I think he. I know we have his timeline, but I'm wondering if he was gone because he was leaving, it going to Florida, coming back, doing all those different things. I'm wondering if he was not in town during that time. Do you remember, Ray? I don't have the timeline in front of me of where Jamie was on different times and stuff like that. Just a quick note to let you know, after this was recorded, I did look up where Jamie was during that time, and he was in Florida. So he was in Florida from September 91 to December 93. So he wasn't in town when that crime occurred. But kind of like with the... The earlier discussion, the police department, this this whole time, and I don't remember the, the exact date the task force was dissolved, 
but they had a task force going on for all the robberies. And and I, I would have to assume that they these detectives would get together. They had so many detectives assigned to each each particular robbery. And I would assume they all got together and say, you know, this is what I have and so-and-so fits that MO. And like any police department, it, names kind of come up. There's troublemakers in, in every town. And whenever certain things happen, they automatically have a whole list of suspects. They, they say, oh, this could be this guy, this guy, and that guy. They've done it before. Let's look at them again. Jamie was, he was in the mix for the Clark Station, the Freedom Robbery, the bus station, all of them. Same with the Jeffs. They were considered, and then they whittle it down. I don't know how, when he did the robbery, I believe he was 19 years old. She was pretty close to Bill Little's age in 91. Uh, so I am sure all the names got passed around. How they eliminated them is the biggest issue. And that's one of the things we don't ever have. We don't have, if they consider Johnson, I mean, his name obviously came up, but there's no follow-up investigation reports that we have that says, categorically, Maurice Johnson did not do the little crime. We don't have that. I don't know how we would get it. I hope it's in some of the, there's some clues in some of the other documents we don't know why the police, I mean, there's names of witnesses. There's the witness who said about Johnson says, I also told this person. But we don't know if the police ever followed up on any of the information that they were given. And that's our frustration. And that really is the point of all of this. We're not saying that they definitively did anything. We just want to know how they were cleared because these people that we've identified as alternative suspects seem to be viable suspects. And it's not just me and Leslie and Bruce as lay persons saying that. It's Ray who had a 30-year career in law enforcement is seeing the same thing. So this isn't speculation. This is going through a history, I guess, just as you know, a law enforcement agency would do and saying, hey, is this person a viable suspect? And the fact that they were not brought up is just amazing. And that's the real problem. Either they were brought up and that wasn't turned over just like you said, or they never identified them as a suspect. Was it because Maurice was black and they just had their mindset that it was a white guy that was a little bit older, I think? Who knows why? We can talk more about that later as we go through. But the other thing I wanted to mention was that I don't think it's a nefarious thing that these police and and Ray, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't I don't think it's nefarious that we keep seeing the same names pop up because again, that was a task force. You have a limited amount of resources that an agency can dedicate to a task force and simply working on these cases, and that's all of the cases that they work on because there's still all kinds of other crimes happening. So this was all around the same time. So we're going to see the same names. Again, that really makes me think of what you said, Ray, about them trying to make a name for themselves because maybe they were just trying to be part of that task force that was solving all of these big crimes, these violent crimes and armed robberies that were happening in town. Does that make sense? It does. There was a group. They had the state police in it, the Bloomington police in it. Another name that comes up with a lot of reports is a detective, Ronfeld, who was a police officer with the State University Police Department. He was on the task force. And they each had certain crimes that they were, it was kind of their primary. But like I said, these guys would talk and they would have to talk back and forth. And it's not like they were separate, that people that were looking at, at the Clark Station didn't talk about the Kroger store, that kind of stuff. There had to be some kind of discussion and, and inner working at the time. And I also think, too, to go back to the race issue, 
in these other crimes, when you see the reports from witnesses who reported seeing them, they did identify the person as a black male. So maybe they just weren't looking anywhere else, just as they did in Jamie's case. I think that was kind of their mistake from the beginning. They had a description. They had a had how how good the witness statements were and how they timed it out and stuff like that from the initial investigation. Like you said before, they said white guy. Although the taxi cab driver saw a black guy sitting in a car at a gas pump. That just disappeared. And a, a car going down the road, uh, the same kind of brown car that was at the gas station going down the road with out-of-state plates that they never caught. It just dropped. Everything just drops. And then they, they proceeded. And then the case just went cold. Now, Charlie Crow, I mean, he retired, but it went cold long before he retired. The state police, they closed the task force down. The state police closed their investigation of it unless they uh, said any new leads come in. And then in 1998, when they I'll say targeted Jamie. Nobody else was involved. The Crow wasn't involved. The state police weren't involved. It was cats and barks. Just backing up a little bit before we get into Kroger, back to Johnson, he had quite the history, uh, as we said in the episode. It was very early on. Of course, we don't know his juvenile record. Actually, his first charge was in 1990. It was some type of drug-related charge. But it seemed like it was something very minor. But between uh, 91 and January of 92 was when he really hit the ground running with the obstruction of justice, possession of marijuana, unlawful use of weapons, concealed weapon without a FOID card at the traffic stop. And as mentioned in the episode, all of these occurred at different times and they were nulled. They were dismissed every single time. Of course, you don't know. It could have been that they, if the state doesn't have enough evidence to prosecute, they're not going to prosecute it because they just, they want to win a case. But it just seemed odd to me that these are kind of heavy, kind of heavy, you know, and then boom, in February, he gets arrested for shooting this guy. It just doesn't seem like it would have been the first time. I think Jamie says, I guess there's always a first time. But that was such a bold move. He reminded me, Leslie, of the erratic nature of Gaston when we were talking about that and outlining how erratic and impulsive Gaston was. Right. So Maurice is erratic and impulsive, but he's also planned this out pretty good where he knew to trick the girls into driving him there and not let on to them what he was doing and how to evade even them by having them park somewhere else and walk in different directions and stuff. And then he also knew to get rid of the murder weapon right after. So I think he did have a little bit of experience. And he was impulsive and violent, but he also didn't really have good control of the crime scene. So he allowed the opportunity to happen for the clerk to try to take his weapon and while he's sticking his hands in there to try to get the cash. And that's when he, quote unquote, accidentally shot him. And then he tried to scramble out a door that was locked and then tried to kill the guy because he couldn't get out. So I think he was a little experienced. And it's also like we mentioned in the episode I imagine maybe could be a mirror image to what Bill experienced when he was being held up. Perhaps an altercation happened and then somebody went and two shots to the chest because they couldn't, for some reason, they thought that they were under intense pressure, maybe because that's when we said we speculate the police started coming or the silent alarm was pressed. But yeah, it does stick out a lot in comparison. So we're talking about the Kroger crime where Derek Brooks was the clerk. And he was the victim. And one thing that struck me that you said, and if you read the reports and we have them online, the witnesses were saying Derek didn't even know that he was shot. 
And he didn't go down. He was just kind of standing there. And the witness said, even after he was shot, he was standing there. He Like he never went down. I, I don't remember them saying that he went down. I'm sure he did eventually. But he said when he grabbed the clerk's hand, he said he thought the gun was fake. And then the stock person in his report says that he was just standing there still and he was dazed and he said, I thought it was a blank. And I just thought that was so, so strange. But what really struck me was the second shots. And that did remind me of Clark. You said that so well that he was trying to kill that boy. Now he said in his sentencing that it accidentally went off. Sorry, Derek. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) I mean, it's like making a 10 year old apologize, go to somebody's house and apologize in front of everybody. Sorry, Derek. I just thought that was so... Ah. <laughs> I don't and, I don't know what I don't even have the words for that. Sorry, Derek. It also <laughs> seems like we've always been postulating and wondering when Bill was shot, when he pressed the silent alarm, when he fell down, if he how did he move around, how was his body moved? And look, now we've got somebody an identical situation who survived and lived to tell how it happened and you can almost imagine that's exactly what happened to Bill with the first shot that went in on an angle where we always said he probably hunched over. And then the next shot was the one that went in level when he was already, or no, the first shot went in level and the next one went in angled when he was hunched over. So you can totally see how that could have happened to Bill. And, you know, maybe he did have the opportunity to press the silent alarm after the first shot. And then maybe the guy went back. I mean, this is exactly how those things happen. And we have proof here. Also, they made such a big deal trying to say that Jamie said that Bill Little could identify him and that's why he killed him. In Johnson's police report, he mentions that he thinks they went to school together. That was a question that Charlie Crow asked the victim. Did you know him? He said, I don't know him. He said, did you go to school with him? He said, I don't think so. I've never seen him. However, Johnson said that he thought they went to school together. Could it have been that he was going for that kill shot because he thought he was recognized because he couldn't get out? That gave the guy a longer time to look at him or or whatever. And just to go back a little bit, when you were talking about the crime scene, As far as his experience, I mean, he left those receipts. He left that two-liter bottle. That's a lot of evidence to leave behind when you're trying to make a getaway. You know, and they used all of that evidence against him. Right. And interestingly enough, when we're talking about experience here, the police gained a lot more experience at this crime scene than they did at the crime scene for Bill Little's murder a year prior. So this time they took more fingerprints and actually fingerprinted the items that were left behind in the drawer. And then voila, they match a fingerprint to the suspect. Whereas in the case against Jamie, they didn't even fingerprint the silent alarm button. They didn't fingerprint. Did they fingerprint the register? No. And that's what struck me as I was researching this case, that it was McKinney And yes, he printed the register. He printed the register at that scene. Right. And this is the exact same rookie crime scene technician that we talked about in length during our forensics episode in season two. It's Randy McKinley. He's the one who did the footprints. He's the one who did the fingerprinting. He's probably the reason the body wasn't documented in the correct way. He may have been in training, remember, may have not been in training. There was a little back and forth on that. But certainly a year later, he did a, you know, a better job. I don't know. You know, they got a slam dunk in this case and Maurice confessed to it pretty quickly. So they gained a lot of experience for sure. I don't know about Maurice though. It seems like the Bill Little homicide went a lot better than this one, but that could just be because Bill couldn't live to talk about it. 
Yeah, in the interview, he was saying that he had never robbed anyone. He had never killed anyone. And what about this day? That was a hell of a day for Johnson. And it just went on and on and on. It was like this crazy. And if you read the reports, they're like, and we were just driving around and we dropped this person off and picked this person up. And they're all redacted. So you can't really tell if they're the same people. Five of them went to Peoria that night and then they went to buy drugs and they got robbed. So three went in the house to buy drugs and she said that they robbed them at gunpoint, took their money, took their coat and took their shoes. And I'm thinking, February in Illinois is not a time to be without your shoes. And then they get back in town at like 1 a.m. And they're still driving around. And I went to my mom's and we sat there and talked to her for a while and then went back somewhere else. And then he took the car to go see somebody and at 2 a.m. and then came back around 2.30. And and that's when the three of them got You know what that reminds me of, though? What? The story with Danny Hartley. And all his little friends who are hanging out at the Clark station and then they're out and about all night long doing this, doing that with a bunch of different people, cramming way too many people in the car. Can't remember who was in the gas station. And then there's that whole Monte Carlo car theft thing that's wrapped up with them, too. So it just seems like it just really reminds me of that chaos. And it's just ridiculous. You've got so many different witnesses, so many hands in this. And I don't know, it just seems kind of similar. Yeah, it does seem kind of similar. They did a lot of running around. I guess that's maybe that's what kids their age did because they would have been all around the same age. I don't remember running around like that because at that age, at that time, because I remember being fearful that we would get stopped because anybody that lives in a small town is probably going to get stopped by the cops if they're out at two, three o'clock in the morning. But they just didn't seem to have that kind of fear. They were running around all over the place. Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snow Files Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the Join Our Patreon button. Now, to the girls, the girls said that they didn't know about it, but do you really believe that? Because the white female driver said, the black female passenger was telling her as soon as they got stopped, she was saying, you know, do you have anything on you? And then she saw him put the money down his pants. Then as soon as they got to the station and it was just the two girls alone, the white girl said the black girl told her to say that Johnson was just walking, not running out of the place and that he came out of the same door that he went into. And then the officer that was sitting with them for about an hour and a half said she was just talking and talking and talking. And she was saying things like, I mean, as soon as she got arrested, the officer said, she said, we ain't no robbers or we're no robbers or something like that. So she kept making all of these references. And then the officer asked her where she was coming from. And she said, we weren't at Kroger's. We were at those apartments, but they had never told them even why they were being stopped at that time, just that a crime had been committed. And then when they were sitting there an hour and a half That whole time he said that she kept making statements. He didn't rob a gas station. He didn't rob a grocery. Whatever she said, you know, she was making incriminating statements so much so. I don't think it was in the episode. The officer said he said this. I'm not sure if he did, but he said, you know, you you might need to wait and talk to Charlie Crow, you know, and tell him all this. So, well, it's clear one was more sophisticated than the other. I think that. One of them knew what was up and maybe the other one isn't a quick learner, obviously. I think that the one that 
knew what was up. Maybe she just knew Maurice did this kind of stuff. And all of a sudden she, he probably told them in the car what he did. I'm pretty sure. I guess the question would be, did they know before? As far as I know, nobody else was prosecuted. I don't think. Um, well, crime. the thing is, he said, I'm going to go get money. That's where he always says. So I, you know, I bet you they probably thought he had to go collect some drug money from the apartments or whatever. And this is probably just a usual thing for him. So yeah, you just lost 400 bucks, right? Was that how much was stolen from him? So he had to go make that up and he had to go do his little collections or rob someplace. I don't really know if it matters if one of them knew or not. I'm sure they figured it out, though. Well, it matters legally because they would have been implicated in the crime. Well, I think it's safe to say that white girl knew nothing about the Bill Little murder because she would have spilled the beans immediately. <laughs> and so he do- he's done this before. That's a, that's a really good point. Right. And, uh, you know, did she? Who knows? <laughs> We don't have all the reports. So we talked about the forensics and the and the stuff that they gathered. They handily had him nailed. And then he goes to prison and long sentence, 25 years. And then he was also charged with the Super 8 Motel armed robbery where he got 40 bucks. In this crime, 130 bucks. He was also implicated in the Amico gas station. Right. So let's put this into perspective for everybody. We've been for years now talking about this string of armed robberies in Bloomington, you know, in bits and pieces. So if we start from the beginning of this story, we've got March 31st, 1991, Bill Little's murdered at the Clark gas station with a 22, less than $100 is taken. Then we move on to the string of robberies the Jeffs did with their taxi cab. So that's August 16th, 1991, August 18th, August 19th. And very similar, a small handgun used and the highest amount of money taken was $166. And again, there was fingerprints and footprints in those gas stations and a hotel, the Econo Lodge. So then we move on to Maurice Johnson, and we have February 24th, 1992, about eight months after the Jeffs. Uh, he does the Amico gas station, which is really close by, the Super 8 Hotel, and the Kroger station on February 26, 1992, with $130 taken and the same caliber weapon used by the Jeffs and also used to kill Bill Little was the handgun. For the Kroger station. That's a brief summary of the string of armed robberies. And the February 24th, Amico and Super 8 occurred on the same day. Wow. See, I couldn't figure that out because we kept saying two days prior, two days prior for both of them. And I was like, oh, one of them has got to be a different day. But nope, thanks for clarifying that. He did both of them on the same day. I guess, I guess $40 wasn't enough, so he had to go to the Amico. <laughs> Actually, I think it was the Amico first and then the Super 8. Mm. Uh, they dropped the charges for the Amico station, and he got 15 years for the Super 8 for 40 bucks. And those sentences, that 25-year sentence and the Super 8 uh, 15-year sentence were served concurrently. So this is kind of messed up, though, because the Jeffs got 20 years, right? One of them, the one that actually had the gun, Jeff Miller, he got 18. And they didn't hurt anybody. They did exactly what Maurice did, but they didn't try to kill anybody. And then you got Maurice literally tried to kill somebody, and he gets less of a sentence for that crime. It's very arbitrary, isn't it? Yeah, but I don't, it's, it's just crazy. And then you've got Jamie who then gets the worst of the worst. So it's obviously the sentencing is pretty nuts. I guess they did get a lot of time for that pretty hefty sentences all around. So at least they were trying to put people away who are doing this. Before we go on to the rest of his story, let's talk about the gun. Ray, I think you have some insight on that gun that was recovered. It was a small H&R nine-shot revolver, twenty-two caliber. 
and it was recovered from the dumpster on the west side of the Kroger building. Was that ever tested against the bullets in the Clark station murder? And do you think that that could have been a match? The gun that was recovered, it was a like you said, an H and R, Harrington and Richardson is a, is a manufacturer. It's a twenty-two. Bill Little's the bullet was identified as being fired from a couple of other particular guns. You can tell what gun fired a bullet. Manufacturer of a gun that fired a bullet it has these lands and grooves on it, and that identifies to the manufacturer. If you have a gun and a bullet to say that one particular gun fired a very specific bullet, then they do the microscopic analysis of the bullet itself. But every H&R will put, and I'm not sure, it could have six lands and grooves with a right-hand twist, and whatever was recovered from Billy Little, that gun if it had five lands and grooves and a left-hand twist, the Harrington Richardson could not have fired that gun. Now, I don't have a list of what gun fired Billy Little's bullet, but it wasn't an H&R 22. And you can even remember one time uh, with the Jeffs, they recovered another Harrington and Richardson from, it was tied to one of the Jeffs robberies And it was a Harrington and Richardson. They did send it to the lab and straight off, the lab says, this gun, Harrington and Richardson, could not have fired the bullet that was recovered from Billy Little. There's no way that that gun's... uh, But I I don't think they tested it for... Well, they did test it. They tested if it it would fire. And uh, I mean, if you go... (laughs) This is kind of of funny because if you... You mentioned it says it was a, a nine-shot revolver. Well, there, there is such a such an animal as, as a twenty-two will shoot nine shots. And that's what the officer's report says he found in the dumpster. But if you read further in all the reports, this would be, uh, you know, something for, for Melinda to remember whenever she uh, gets into a practice about uh, analyzing the reports and shooting down the officer's testimony. <laughs> The gun that is submitted into evidence is listed as having six shots. So there's this, the Bloomington police, although they got better with their <laughs> testing for fingerprints and, and a whole lot more dusting at the crime scene and stuff like that, their reports are still so out of whack. It, it's crazy. Another thing that struck me, Ray, is that I remember talking to you a long time ago about because I don't know anything about guns, casings. And you said that the gun that was used in the Clark oil crime did not have casings. And they did retrieve casings from this crime. Is that another indication that that wasn't? I think it's just the terminology, because if you read the evidence reports and what was submitted to the lab, McKinsey actually took the gun apart. He submitted the gun itself, and then he, he took the cylinder off the gun and submitted the cylinder as a separate exhibit to be examined. And that's where the casings were in the cylinder. So they weren't, oh. picked, up, they weren't picked up from the ground. And they did some testing on the thing. They had one, one bullet was still live in that cylinder. And then they had the casings. They're all empty. And one of the lab reports actually was corrected to say that there were multiple firing pin strikes on the casing. So that's when the clerk's statement that he went to the door and pulled the trigger a couple more times. Every time he pulled the trigger, it would rotate the cylinder and put a little dimple into the primer on the bullet. And uh, I think he was shooting an empty gun at him. He had already fired the gun that uh, he was aiming at the clerk. He got him with the, the one live round, and then he pulled the trigger on empty casings. Okay, so that's interesting. And another thing that you can remember, Melinda, is that proves, because Johnson said he shot once when he was asked, 
how many times did you shoot once? But that proves right there that he fired the gun twice more because of the dimple in the empty, right? Exactly. That's enlightening. I wanted to talk a little bit about the officer that observed the large hole in a fence behind Kroger and noted on the ground under the hole was a piece of cardboard with foot impressions on it. Next to the hole was a large kitchen knife stuck into the ground. That was just so interesting to me because it doesn't seem like that would be related to this crime at all. But I just thought, is it related to another crime? I mean, <laughs> well, I there- think yeah. I know exactly what it is. I think it's people who live in the apartment who they would just want to make a shortcut to the Kroger to get what they want. And they cut a hole in the fence, left the kitchen knife there for later. Maybe they got to make the hole bigger. Maybe, I don't know. And then they use the cardboard or whatever to help them get under the debris and get under the fence. And I know this from personal experience because when I was in the Army Reserve, our unit in New York was up against a Dunkin' Donuts. So what do you think the soldiers did? They cut a hole in the you know, the government fencing exactly the same way. And then they would just crawl through like little commandos and go get their Dunkin' Donuts. So I think that's what they were doing with the Kroger. Okay. That's funny. Now, do you think that you can cut, I would assume there would be a galvanized fence with a- (laughs) Probably not. (laughs) With a kitchen knife? (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that's why they stuck it in the dirt because it didn't work. And they were like, oh, (laughs) screw this. I could just imagine somebody walking around with a freaking kitchen knife. I mean, that sounded like a butcher knife. It said large, so that just made me think of a kitchen knife. I don't know. I just thought that was a crazy little tidbit there. So we should talk about how this crime compares to the murder of Bill Little at the gas station that Jamie was wrongfully convicted of. And in the episode, we start with how Johnson was a spontaneous armed robber. He grabbed the money and left, and he didn't have much preparation. And that seems like what happened in the Clark crime, where less than $100 was taken, and then Johnson also took petty sums of money. So we talked about in-depth the ballistics with the small caliber handgun used, and both times the clerk would be shot in the chest more than once. And there was intent to kill in both of the crimes. So now we should really talk about this getaway car. So we pointed out in the episode, we quickly just reminded you that Susan was accused of being the getaway driver in her trial. And there was the brown car and Pilo saying he saw a woman say, oh, shit, it's the cops. And they tried to link that to Susan. There was also Wiley Holt saying that he saw a black man sitting in the brown sedan a kid riding a bike saying he saw the brown sedan speeding away. And the other issue that we can kind of wrap into this is the Monte Carlo. There was that whole issue with who was driving this Monte Carlo that was discovered and recovered as stolen the same night that Bill Little was killed. It kind of looked like it was brown. It was like a midnight silverish oily color And we ended up finding out through the Truth and Justice podcast that it was um, stolen by a couple kids doing a joyride and had nothing to do with the Bill Little murder. But until we figured that out, we were always assuming that that Monte Carlo was the car that was seen by all these witnesses. Whereas now, if you link the Maurice Johnson car, could have very well have been his Pontiac Bonneville. What do you think about that, Tam, and how Susan was accused of being the driver of this brown car when she didn't even have a car? And none of them were out doing that. And this brown car just keeps coming up over and over again. The prosecution had a really hard time with that because there was never an indicator of Susan. She drove around, and I'm not sure if it was a little bit before that time or during that time, but back in the day, because remember that this was prosecuted 10 years later, she had a Pinto, which is very distinctive looking car for all of you youngins who don't know. A Pinto has a very distinct shape. It was not dark. Pinto. I can't remember what color it was, but 
it definitely wasn't anything close to what this, what everybody kept saying, a brown sedan. Right. And the Pontiac and the Monte Carlo look almost identical, even down to the wheels. I think that the Pontiac's a little bit longer, so it might look more like a four-door than a two-door. It's definitely a two-door, but I wouldn't be able to tell the difference as a witness. Definitely the Pinto you can. The Pinto's like a tiny little sports car. And they were always saying, you know, all of these people that were saying, oh, wow, you know, the kid, the, the brown uh, brown car sped away. It says maroon, but it's a very dark color that it seems to me could easily be. It does look brown at night, especially. So I guess the question that I had with that was that so many people were talking about a brown sedan. Would there have been anyone that would have said it was a maroon color car? I don't know. As far as similarities go, you're right. I mean, it looks very similar. They're saying brown sedan. One person said a four-door. That was Wiley Holt. He said a four-door, but it's a it's a long car. It could easily also be mistaken as a four-door because the door is so long. Are we the first two people to make this connection with Maurice's getaway car? I mean, was that Maurice's car or was, or was it just the car that the girl had or was that his car? I don't know, but we have the VIN number. Okay, so we, so would, we can track then that. Then we would also want to know whose car it was and was this car available to Maurice in a year prior in 1991. If it's that white girl's car, maybe not. She didn't seem to know what was up. <laughs> so um, I don't know if she was just a driver, if it was her car or what, but that's something for us to think about. The other thing, though, is that I just can't get over like it almost confused me so many times reading it that when Pilo reports he saw the driver go, oh, shit, it's the cops, a, fem- mm-hmm. a white female driver. I'm like, wait, that could totally be exactly the same thing that happened the night that Maurice Johnson was running away from the Kroger station with a white girl driving. I guarantee you they said, oh, shit, it's the cops. One thing that we mentioned in the episode is that all these armed robberies happened within less than a five-mile radius of Johnson's residence. The Kroger was 2.2 miles away. The Super 8 was 3.5 miles away. We don't have an actual address, but they refer to the Amico as being in the South Hill neighborhood. And uh, a local person told me that's about a quarter of a mile south of the county jail, which, you know, makes that less than a mile. That would be the closest place. Clock Station was 1.7 miles away from his home. Obviously, the guy committed these crimes in his neighborhood or in around where he had access, where he knew, in a place where he was familiar. And I just thought that was interesting that all of these crimes were committed in less than five miles from his residence. And that's one thing that the officer said he said he took the report on the Amico South Hill and he immediately thought that Johnson was a viable suspect because it was so close to his home that it was in his neighborhood. And I just thought that was interesting. And that just started making me look at all the, all the distances. Right. And then if you connect to this to the Clark Station crime and Jamie, Jamie lived clear across town and didn't have a car. So, you know, it just, it makes no sense. Exactly. That's a great point. It's just uncanny how these things match so very well. And what I meant to ask you, Tam, are we the first people to put this together? Was Maurice Johnson ever questioned in connection with this crime seriously? With the murder of Bill Little? Not that I'm aware of. I've not seen any police reports or anything indicating that he was that he was questioned. As we said in the beginning, there was a, a pretty strong tip from someone that he had said he had done. The so murder. this is what I'm not understanding. You have two officers from separate entities, Bernardini and Barkas, and they're here for all of this in real time. So they do know about the brown car. They do know about how 
the clerk was shot in the chest twice. They do know how this guy went to jail for it. They do know that he was in the area committing a slew of crimes. Unfortunately, we cannot pin stuff on him from when he was a year prior when he was 17 because we don't have his juvenile records, but they have it. They know what he was doing. Was he committing other crimes in the area at that time that they have knowledge of? So how does he not get questioned? How is this not on paper somewhere? I, I just really don't understand. Especially if somebody came forward. The Jeffs were questioned for this and their shoe prints compared. The gun was compared. And this was all happening in sync around, you know, the exact same 12-month window here. So how could they have been pursuing the Jeffs so hard, but then not pursued Johnson? Two things come to mind when you bring that up. And that is that, and that floored me too, because Crow is the one that was the lead investigator on the Kroger case. I mean, it was Crow who knew that case inside and out because he was there from the beginning and he was the one primarily working Clark Wahlberger. And there were so many similarities. The only thing I think they may have ruled him out because he was black and they were really at this time, they didn't believe, uh, well, they uh, seemingly didn't believe Martinez and they were going by Gutierrez's description who they did believe. Right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, I think that's the only thing that I can think of it. What Jamie said in the beginning of this episode was that he believes that too. It was those composites when they were just like, it was a white guy you know, with a chin scar and an earring, a skinny white guy. So right. it, they're saying that it couldn't have been Maurice. I looked, Maurice wasn't seemingly in jail at the time. So if Jamie gets these 8,000 documents and there actually was a workup done on Maurice as an alternative suspect, is that Brady material that would have been withheld from him? Yes. So I guess he'll find out one way or the other. Because you have to you have to turn over anything that is favorable to the defense. Now, Ray, let me ask you, when you're doing an investigation, would you just automatically rule somebody out like this because they were black or because of a witness composite? Or would you pursue it further if things mirrored the crimes mirrored each other so much? Or, you know, back then in the nineties, would you have just done the same thing and looked for someone else with this with jamie's case i mean that's what it seems like like you just said they had a description and they said a white guy and that's they seemed to disregard everything else they had leads to come in and says this guy looks like the composite then they have a little bit of a follow-up on it says yeah, he looks like the, the composite but he didn't have a scar on his chin so that's out of there they put so much reliability on what Pilo said and what Martinez said and what Gutierrez said, that they seem to have forgotten everything else. Now, if they were to investigate it, these names come up. Johnson comes up. They should investigate Johnson to eliminate him as a suspect to the same degree that they would find evidence to convict somebody. Because, I mean, just... For the def for the defense or the further prosecution, and what this coming up that said, hey, Johnson could have done it. Well, how did you eliminate him? Well, we didn't really eliminate him because he was he was black, and we thought the guy was white. That would have been <laughs> it would shoot the whole police investigation in the foot. So they they didn't do that though. They didn't. I mean, they may have. I don't. We don't know. There's no follow up on anything. There's no follow up to say how Johnson was was not considered or how they eliminated him. Because I mean, they had his name. They had people says he walked in and says, "I just shot the guy at Clark Station." We can't find any follow up on it. We have other people say, you know, so and so did it. There's some follow up on some of them, but like I said, some of them they just say, well. He couldn't have done it because he doesn't have a scar on his chin. And that, I think that investigation is just completely flawed. And then 
when it, when it picks up. I mean, they don't even consider if you follow the timeline of when they picked up again in 1998 up to the trial, you don't see any review of Maurice Johnson. They don't even look at that lead anymore. It's just uh, they were focused. It was very targeted at that point. Again, what we don't have is the police may have talked about it. We don't know the conversation in, in the back room at, at headquarters saying Maurice Johnson did it. And they said, no, he didn't. And this is why we why he didn't do it. We don't have that. So you would not have cleared Maurice Johnson, even if this was back in 1991 when things were done a little bit differently and witness identification was heavily relied on much more back then and issues of race were a lot different than they are now. Even with all those factors, what I'm hearing from you is you would not have cleared him. No, of course not. Particularly not without talking to him, finding out an alibi where he was on March 31st at 8 p.m. I mean, we have somebody telling, telling the police that on March 31st that 8.06, he was in the Clark Station shooting Billy Little. They have somebody telling them that. But we don't have a report where they went to Maurice Johnson and says, we're bringing you in for questioning. Never questioned at all. Uh, they talked to the person that had, I mean, it was hearsay, basically. They got it from somebody else, told them that he did it. They didn't talk to either of those people. They didn't talk to the witness that came forward. They didn't talk to the person who supposedly had the information. And they didn't talk to Johnson. No record of how they said he didn't do it definitively. He was in jail. He was all along the line. He could say, I was at my mother's house having dinner. The next step would be to go to his mother and say, "Did you was Mark Maurice with you on Easter night? At that point, I mean, you at least have something. You don't know how truthful it is, but you have something that you followed up on it. And he wasn't there. He couldn't have done it. But there was nothing on it. So they just go on. He gets the 25 years. He gets the 15 concurrent sentence. The Amico is dropped and he goes to jail. But by 2006, he's in trouble again. He gets a possession and he gets three years. And then in 2008, he does this crazy robbery where he basically assaults an 83-year-old man, takes his wallet, and there's not even anything in it. And it's the same M.O., right? It's the same M.O. So he goes in there. He can't cash a check. The clerk won't cash his check. He goes out. And I don't know if he's just, I think maybe he got the idea if he saw the gentleman in the store, because the person that was driving the car said that he said, hey, stop right here. I'm going to go to the bathroom. And then once again, when the elderly gentleman walks out, he pushes him towards his car and takes his wallet. And then he goes and jumps in the other car and says, go, 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 go. <laughs> and the guy was like, I had no idea. He, he said, I have paper. So he's on parole. He said, I, I wouldn't do anything like that. I had no idea he was going to do that. And that's the same thing, basically, that he did, if you're to believe the two girls, that he did. So then he goes back to jail. It's like a revolving door. So again, in 2017, he was convicted of aggravated robbery with a firearm. We don't have the details of those case, but that was in Springfield as well. And now he's supposed to get out in 2023 and he'll be fully discharged in 2026. He'll either finish that sentence out in prison or he'll get parole in 23 and be on parole for three years. That's just, you know, when you were talking about the arbitrary sentences, Leslie, I mean, this guy gets every break you could ever think of. And then Jamie's sitting in prison for something he didn't do for 22 years now, more time than that guy got for shooting someone, trying to kill him. Right. And Jamie does not have a history like this at all. So everyone's like, oh, Jamie was a party animal. He was a drug user. Some people from the Truth and Justice fan page accused him of being a crackhead. And it's like, 
that's not true. None of that stuff is true. He doesn't have any violent crimes. He doesn't have any reports of him going to apartment buildings to collect money for drugs. There is none of that. He's never assaulted somebody on the street like that. There's been no reports of him getting into violence with an 83-year-old man or there's just none of that. So how could you have somebody with this whole slew of past history and them continue to prove themselves even when they get released from prison that they're still a hardened criminal. And then you look at Jamie, who he didn't have any of that history, and he's been in prison in Supermax for 22 years. And he's never, even to this day, still been involved in violence like that, not even inside that prison. So that's just more credence to his innocence. He does not fit the perpetrator. It's very frustrating. So to wrap this up, we always refer back to our Jim Clemente profile that he gave to Bob Ruff on the Truth and Justice podcast. So let's uh, go through it real quick, see if it fits and you decide. Jim Clemente said that whoever killed Bill Little would have been, quote, somebody desperate, somebody high, somebody really pissed off at somebody else. Someone who is on the younger side, who's impulsive, who doesn't have a tremendous amount of experience doing his particular crime, which is killing somebody and staging it as a robbery. He's not going to have like a great long-term job. He's going to have issues with relationships, but I think he's probably from the area. So you decide. Sounds like a dead ringer to me. Except he's black. <laughs> well, he didn't say what color he was, but um, yeah, he was. Uh, he mentioned somebody who's high, and we do have Maurice buying and selling drugs. Maybe he was using them. He was impulsive. He was only 18 years old, so he didn't have a tremendous amount of experience. And I don't think he had a great long-term job because he was a drug dealer. His he reports say he was unemployed. Right, and uh, he's definitely from the area. We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show to give their point of view or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential 